This podcast contains content such as bullying and mental health topics and may not be suitable for listeners who are impacted by these topics. If you are experiencing issues in your workplace or would like more information on resources available in your location, please check the show notes or head to www.supercooltoxicworkplace.com. This is Super Cool Toxic Workplace, Episode 8, Choices. On this episode, we talk to people about their experiences during and after the apology and the arranging of the meetings. You'll have noticed a shift in content. We're now very much in a real timeline. Of course, I could continue with the testimonies, but I want to be honest, I don't know if these first 10 episodes will be it for Super Cool Toxic Workplace. I have over 40 hours of footage I have new sources every day right now, and in order to be accurate with the reporting, I have basically remade this podcast this week. And the thing is, you heard the words of the people that have spoken on this podcast. It was hard to listen to. I know that. And just how deep into trauma do we have to go to say it's real? For me, the patterns are clear and consistent. The strategies are evident and self-revealing. And the question becomes, after apologizing for severe harassment and misogyny at Mikola, how did the company conduct themselves after? In the last episode, we left knowing about two meetings held either side of MBCC, one on the 21st of October and the other on the 25th, after the company issued a public apology and Don released an apology. The nature of these meetings should be brought into this podcast. And it should be noted the company has apologized and expressed their sadness about the first meeting. But again, it was what happened behind the scenes that, again, shrouded the intentions of the company and their public communications in confusion. Again. What has been a challenge to bring you all of this about Mikola is exactly that the interactions you can have with them and the communications can to the untrained eye seem incredibly genuine and validating. Sifting through months of evidence and testimony, I can say, I hypothesize, the company believes itself and has conducted itself as though it understood the problem. The fact the company keeps missing the mark with those harmed and with community seems to be the evidence that the company do not understand the problem and thus When the company attempts to communicate about it, it comes across like they don't understand the problem. And what this episode details is a company with the intentions to do the right thing, but to make one crucial error. Leave survivors out of it. Except there's one thing I want to clear up before we get into the minutiae of the testimony that you'll hear. I was told directly by HR that the only reason survivors were included in these meetings and invited was because one asked to be. I asked myself, however, in response to that, was that in the best interest of the survivors? And again, was this decision made with them in mind? That's getting into the details, however. And later, these details are illuminated by a witness, not only to the meeting, but the premise and rollout of the meeting. October 15 was the day when Mikola put up an apology that Don 
did the same, but apologizing for some media interviews. However, it is my understanding that those affected by those claims have not been apologized to directly. It's on October 19th, 2021, that Mikola published a work environment action plan. There's an introduction, there's an action plan for MBCC. We heard about that in the previous episode. And then we have a happening now section, short-term actions. And it's in here that they describe the meeting. Under the subtitle, Actions for the Industry. Industry-moderated debate meetings. That's bold. They then go on to say, Two joint events for the industry, survivors, and critics prior to MBCC 2021. With external moderator, Katya Holm, and critical advisor, Anna Tjusen. And listen, I'm doing it, once again, I'm doing my best with the Danish, okay? So... That's what went out from the company, and now we're going to jump back in with the fastidious Kate Burnott and what she learned as she reported about these meetings. So we're recording this on the 29th of October. So now two weeks, exactly two weeks after the We Are Sorry post on Instagram and the invitations that were sent out to people to attend this meeting. We now know about these two meetings and we have an idea of what happened there. What have you been able to find out and uncover and understand about these meetings and and how they were received? I was not able to attend either meeting. I was traveling at the time, but um, was provided recordings of them and transcripts of them and uh, spoke to um, someone who had attended both meetings. to get a sense of, of how they were structured, how they played out. And listening to the recording of the first meeting in particular, it's clear that the structure and format of the meeting were not what some attendees expected or hoped for. So just the basic outline from listening to the recording, the moderator opened the meeting. Don spoke. And then CEO spoke. And then a woman who was sort of there to act, I guess, as a voice of people who have been harassed in workplace situations in general, kind of spoke generally about toxic workplaces and what harassment is. And so this is now half an hour of the meeting, roughly, where no one else had spoken. And so when the floor finally sort of was opened up a little bit, one audience member stood up to ask why no one had been offered the chance to ask questions or, you know, there wasn't a dialogue aspect to it. It was, it felt like presentations and prepared remarks versus a dialogue where audience members could contribute to the conversation. So it quickly, from what I could listen to, seemed to devolve into kind of this chaotic situation where you know, people are critiquing the format, but there's not really an ability to change the format. Um, so it, it it kind of just ended seemingly with a request from the moderator for everyone to break into small groups and have discussions. So, you know, listening to it um, and speaking to an attendee, it did sound like it was kind of chaotic after those initial presentations and that there wasn't much of the actual back and forth and conversation that people had hoped to have with Keller leadership. I suggest you read some of Kate Burnott 
Well, actually, I suggest you read all of Kate Burnott's work, and she has done a fantastic job going into even more detail about these first meetings on the Good Beer Hunting sightlines section. So do read up if you'd like further context there. A perspective from the inside is always valuable in these situations. You're going to hear from someone who was wanting to provide some of their own insights from this first meeting. I'm here today with a member of the beer community, someone who is very active in the Copenhagen scene. Would you like to tell us how you became involved with this? So I've been a part of the Copenhagen beer scene, working in the in the industry for about seven years, uh, including being employed by McKellar maybe six or seven years ago. So definitely being witnessing their culture from the inside, uh, which is also one of the, one of the reasons that I quit um, from them. And I have uh, heard stories from people that have been hurt by them or have uh, bad experiences from working there uh, over the years. Also from other companies, of course, just a general experience of a bad work environment and sexism in this industry that I work in, which has always been on my mind. Uh, the Red Magnus stories, stories came out on Instagram and, of course, moved me a lot and uh, very interested in being a part of this movement and doing what I could to push for a positive change and do something about this problem because I felt very tied beforehand because of fear of the bigger companies and how to do this and we're not really organized so that was a big part of the problem. Then uh, the stories of McKellar started coming out and I felt it came even closer to home and I know some people, some of these people as I mentioned with with stories that are not so pretty and uh, pretty problematic and so I chose to act as a support person for some of these survivors, someone that they could talk to about what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it, take them through some of the hard times and just be there uh, as a friend and as an uh, industry like support person. I have also been having my own opinions about uh, Mikela's way of handling the, the situation. Yeah, I've just been participating a bit behind the scenes in the discussion. You haven't previously spoken publicly about either the work that you've done behind the scenes or your experiences with the company. Why are you coming to us today? I feel like there was a kind of a turning point. Keller finally was pushed uh, to the point where they uh, admitted that they were sorry and they made this action plan uh, in relation to NBCC. Um, I had a lot of problems with the way that NBCC was handled up until criticism of the festival happened and people, the brewery started to, to cancel. So I started being more outspoken when the festival NBCC was getting closer uh, and I hadn't heard anything from McKellar about anything that they would do in the relation to the, to the festival to show that they wanted to do things differently. I thought that it was a great opportunity. I've told them this directly uh, in the beginning of this whole like months ago, uh, use this festival to show that you want to make a change, you know, like talk about this, make awareness of this. You have all these international breweries around, you have all this spotlight on you and all this rock star party feeling like we could, it can really be like a positive way to bring this subject to light. And uh, maybe you could do something with like a system for reporting. Uh, if something happens at the festival, like there's so many opportunities to do something cool with this festival in relation to this topic. And I just heard nothing. Uh, and it was two weeks until the festival. And it was just like the same kind of uh, media, uh, social media about it. Like, let's have a great party. And these are the breweries that are going to attend. And I was just frustrated with 
the silence. If they were doing something, it wasn't transparent at least, and that was problematic. Like if you're a ticket holder or somebody who's maybe thinking of attending the festival, you wouldn't hear it if it, they only do it internally. You were watching the MBCC dropouts. It was obviously heavily reported in the media and that prompted the response from Mikela, their October 15 post, We Are Sorry. You, a few hours before that, had received an invitation from the company to attend one of the meetings that they had, or to attend rather both of the meetings that they had planned. Would you like to tell us about that? So I wasn't happy that it had to go so far so that the whole festival might not happen and all the dropouts and everything like that drama. Uh, I would have liked it to be more proactive, uh, of course. So it was pretty chaotic uh, and uh, and a lot of the stuff in the media was really upsetting. Don's statements. Uh, especially. Um, so I was just really confused. And then receiving this invitation for these meetings, I started just getting this like panic, like how can this be a solution to what's going on? Uh, I felt like it was the way that the invitation sounded uh, was extremely confusing. There was no agenda. There was no clear purpose for the meeting. It seemed like a really rushed thing. And I didn't even really know why I was invited because I wasn't a part of any of the breweries that were participating. I'm not been an open uh, critic uh, publicly and I'm not a survivor. Why are you choosing these people? Because it was a closed meeting. It wasn't open. This was not something they posted where anybody could participate. And they also asked the participants to reach out to people who want, wanted to be invited. And we had to find people that wanted to maybe join this meeting. And it was with like maybe two. I got the invitation three days before the meeting. Uh, I had very little time to give feedback, but I still really tried to get some clarification from headquarters, both because the invitation was uh, focused also on invitation uh, to survivors um, and that confused me a lot because these were the people that I was in contact with and was supporting and if I was to go and support them at that meeting I would need to know what we're going into like I want to protect I want to clarify all these things so that the people that have these traumatic experiences don't have to like take all of that on themselves and navigate in that. Uh, so I tried to do a little bit of that work and it was still super unclear. Even after those uh, email back and forth with headquarters, they said that the, that the survivors were invited because after the initial invitations to people, to breweries and participants, uh, there was a request for this, a request for survivors to be invited and they would like to accommodate that. And I was still like, if the meeting is not set up for survivors participating or people with allegations, then uh, it's not a safe space. It's not, the meeting is not made for that. Like I felt like if they wanted to make a meeting with a Q&A with the participating breweries and maybe the breweries that dropped out, that would be appropriate. You know, it's within the festival, it's Mikula's relationship with the, with the breweries that were invited. Uh, and maybe they would like to ask some questions face to face. Like I'm all for that. I kind of listed it in these three. So if that's the purpose of the meeting, go ahead, but I'm not supposed to be there. Uh, I don't have any purpose in being there. And if it's uh, for the survivors, I think that's super inappropriate. And I don't think that they should sit with 25 international breweries that don't know anything about the backstory and sit there, even with an assessor. That's what they wrote in the email, that they would have an assessor hired to support the, the survivors. And I still thought that it was a really bad idea. And they said that it was a good idea and they wanted to go through with it. So I did give them that feedback. Now we're in this festival, in this chaotic situation that happened in two weeks. 
I said, let's a breather, like let's have a, a, a break and then we can see how we want to take this moving forward because it was a big deal that they uh, said they were sorry and they made this action plan. And it was all this positive stuff that we've been asking for for months and finally it happened, but then this chaotic meeting situations happened afterwards and it was just like another hurdle of confusing stuff from them. From that point, it's my understanding you did eventually attend the meeting. Could you take me through how that happened and, and what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, during these uh, many months of, of back and forth uh, with McKellar in this conflict, uh, there's been this, this discussion about dialogue. Who wants to dialogue? Who wants to do a dialogue? How? Um, all these things, meetings getting canceled, uh, all this stuff. So now Mikela is saying, we want dialogue. And it's on our terms and stuff, with it, which of course I had a problem with uh, because there was no agenda. We couldn't ask for an agenda to be changed or make inputs or anything. Uh, so I felt like if I said no to coming as a critic, uh, I would turn down the dialogue and that would be able to be spinned or twisted against me or others in the future uh, if we canceled, if I canceled. So I felt like I had to go and just be there to just witness and just see what this mess was all about. And I finally made the decision to go when one of the survivors decided to go. One of the people that I had, one of my friends that I have been supporting in this and I uh, said, then I'll be there. I'll be there with you. Um, We're not in a position uh, to be talking about survivors' experiences specifically. What we're here to talk to you about today is what you witnessed. And based on what you've just said, you knew that this could be a potentially destructive environment or in the very least that this could be a non-productive environment for survivors. And you knew that one was going and you therefore wanted to go with them. What happened when you arrived at this meeting? So I arrived with this person. Uh, we were uh, offered to come half an hour before the meeting uh, because there would be this assessor, Anna Thuisen, who would uh, who we could meet before and just like get comfortable with and figure out what we wanted to do at that meeting and what role the survivor would have because she's also an industry person. So maybe she just wanted to go like that and not as a survivor. She needed to find out, am I safe here or am I not safe here? So that's why we met with the assessor beforehand. Um, and then we get in to the room and the Anna Thuisen, the assessor, that was presented many times in the email as a, the assessor, is 10 minutes late. So that means we have 20 minutes to talk with her. The first things that she said when she sits down is that she's not the assessor. Uh, she's gotten a new title, which is critical advisor. And in the 20 minutes uh, that we sit there with her, nobody else, no other survivors. It was presented like now we the survivors will go and meet with Anna Thuisen. And there was no one else there. And I felt like it was just, it felt like walking into a trap kind of thing. Uh, because the person I was with is also one of the only people that Michaela has reached out to and talked to already. So it felt like they were using her to justify this survivor part of the meeting, which actually in the email from headquarters, uh, I asked why the meeting was not open to anybody to participate. And the answer I got was that survivors was going to be present. So they wanted to make it a safe space and protect them so that they could know who was on the guest list and stuff like that. And this is like now one person that they have tricked into coming to this thing, meeting with an assessor who turns out not to be an assessor. And it's just super confusing and extremely like feels very unsafe, even for me, that is not the person with the trauma. 
Anna Thyssen then proceeds to uh, criticize Mikkeller throughout the whole 20 minutes about how much of an amateur uh, meeting this is and how she canceled on them a day before the meeting uh, because she told them she couldn't be the assessor because, of course, she's hired by them and she can't speak on behalf of people that she don't know and all of these things that an assessor is that she couldn't be, obviously. I also had to read up on what an assessor actually is for a kind of role. And she definitely wasn't uh, eligible to be that. Um, and then I don't know who came up with the name critical advisor, but it was like made in the 11th hour, like, then you'll be this instead. And so we were like, why are we here? If there's no, like, what is the sole, what is, what is the purpose even of, of this uh, per person with allegation being present at this meeting? It's very inappropriate and it's, Uh, not really safe at all. We tried to get her to uh, tell us what the meeting was going to be about because we still didn't know what the frame was or what the agenda was or who was going to talk and how it was going to... We wanted to get a frame, like who's going to... So, of course, there was a moderator, uh, Katja Holm. Uh, so we thought that she would make kind of like an open discussion. But then she started talking about workshops, like we were going to do workshops and uh, we were just so confused. I sat there the whole time and I was just trying to figure out if we should leave or not. And we decided to stay because we were just like shocked and curious at the same time. Uh, and we knew that there were other people that were uh, from our uh, community and our like, um, like coming to support this group of people that were more critic to the situation. And we wanted to be a part of that. So there was a stronger voice in that, uh, in that corner kind of thing. And then the meeting started and we still didn't know what was going to happen. So Asking for the agenda and the format and the purpose from Mikula headquarters, the answer from headquarters was that this was not a Mikula meeting. This was uh, not an agenda set by them. That's also why I thought it would be an open floor for discussion because if they don't, if they say they don't have an agenda because they don't want to control the meeting and they said in the email that they would participate on equal grounds as anyone else there. So they were only facilitating the 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 frame like the, the space that we were in the moderator the proclaimed assessor and then when the meeting started of course it was a really shock to me and my friend that don was the first person to speak and sitting with a person who's been hurt by this company and then the person maybe not the person that hurt her but the person that was responsible at the time standing and and being given the word as the first thing And then the CEO, like, or, or already like, well, this is a Mikula meeting. Like then, like they're getting the word and Ketchaholm is giving them the mic and no questions asked from the, from the audience. So it was a show. It's, it seemed like a show that they put on. Um, it's now a critical, critical advisor gets the word. And we had no idea she was going up to speak. She didn't tell us that in the, in the pre-meeting, she didn't say that she was going to talk. We thought that she was going to sit and listen And that we could go and talk. To, that was how she presented it. That she, we can go and talk to her afterwards about how we experienced the meeting. And so we were like, when they gave her the word, we were like looking at each other like, uh, okay. Uh, she didn't ask uh, my friend a single question when we sat in the meeting before. She didn't ask how she was feeling, how, like what her story was, like nothing. It was all about her. And then when she stood up to make her lecture on what sexism is, it just felt like such a violation of like, you have this survivor sitting here who's been invited and now we're being lectured on how it is to be a victim. I'm not saying that that lecture wasn't relevant in another format, but that my friend shouldn't have been there. 
it was really, really like another violation to her. And she was very, very upset and she left. She asked me to stay to witness the rest of the meeting, but she had to leave because she was so angry. And she felt like, what the hell have I just witnessed uh, from the perspective that she comes with? It was just uh, not the right thing to do from them. And I'm really still very disappointed about that. And maybe they have admitted that that was a shitty meeting, but it still happened. And they still did that to her. And I'm angry about that. Because they, they decided to invite Anna Thyssen, but they still invited this persona in who's also a public figure and who's been, been speaking publicly about this subject for, for a lot of time and has her own uh, agenda with speaking about this uh, topic. And it seemed to me that she was more concerned about not being called an assessor because of how the media would uh, portray it afterwards. And then I was like, okay, I guess I thought, well, if Mikela comes out with an article, they want to call her critic advisor, critical advisor instead of uh, an assessor. And I thought, okay, whatever. But then afterwards, she's gone out in the media talking a lot about this case and still pretending to be a representative for the survivors. And I can't even hear her voice anymore because I'm so angry that she's even been allowed to be a part of this just one single bit. She wasn't invited to the second meeting, which I think was a great choice because uh, I think she upset a lot of people that day. Um, with her very, she seemed very entitled and very like sure of herself as an expert. And she didn't know who anybody was in that room. And she was just talking and it was so irrelevant and so inappropriate. And now she keeps talking about it and she keeps like bringing up her point of view of the whole case. And she has so little information and she's probably only been speaking with McKellar because I don't know anybody that's talked to her. So that she goes out and says all these cases have been dealt with in a podcast two days ago. And I just had to have to sit and listen to that and be like, you don't have a voice in this. So you're talking about, yes, this critical advisor has gone out into the media. I'm aware of a Belinska article and I'm also aware of a podcast that went out two days ago, I believe. You've listened to that podcast. What was notable about the things she said to you in relation to this case? She talked a lot about Mikela's way of handling this. And she is a counselor for, uh, for companies in these sort of uh, crisis situations. So she was speaking about their management of this and being both critic, but also uh, praising them for their handling of the situation and for their bravery in also making this new role as a critical advisor, uh, which was as I was told by her in person, was a last minute kind of whoop-de-doo, pull it out of bag uh, word uh, and role that didn't even exist. Uh, so I don't think it was very thought through and I don't think that they should be applauded for that move uh, publicly. Um, but one of the main things was that she kept talking about the cases in particular that Mikela has been, or the allegations saying multiple times in the podcast that all of these cases have been dealt with. And this is the whole problem of the last five months is how Mikela has been handling and dealing with these allegations and stories. And it's just so arrogant to go out when you've only talked to the company that's in crisis uh, and that has been, they have been dealing with it, but it hasn't been dealt with. If you're she's portraying it as it's like, it's over, like that part of it's over and it's not. So it's just, if, if you're a company in crisis and you invite this person in who's taking uh, advantage of this situation to 
to talk about herself in the media, it's just, uh, I wish they hadn't done that because it's just mudding the waters even more. And she has no right to go out and talk about this. She's not a representative and she needs to back off from that role. She can still talk about Mikola's crisis handling of the situation and their public statements and stuff, but do not use the survivors and, and put yourself in a role where you are speaking for them. To your knowledge, she has not reached out to any of the survivors that you're currently in contact with? No. From what I know, she was hired by Michaela for this one meeting, one and a half hours. She spent 20 minutes with one survivor where she did all the talking. She didn't ask a single question. She wasn't interested in this person. So no, she hasn't talked to anyone, not to my knowledge. The problem for me with Anna Thuisen, uh, and, and and her relation to Michaela is that I still think that Michaela has a responsibility for having invited this person into the conflict and who is going rogue, it seems, on her own, uh, she's, she can speak about whatever she wants. We have free speech, but it's just, I still think that they have a responsibility to maybe ask her to, if they know that she's not taking the right role, the role that they asked her to take, or like she's keeping going after a meeting where she wasn't invited back. Uh, I, th- I just think it's really problematic. I wish they had never invited her in. Uh, she's caused so much more damage than than help, and she was supposed to be a support, and I'm just really disappointed in that. To your knowledge, obviously now we understand that she was hired for this one meeting in the specific capacity. She wasn't invited back. However, she did represent the external party to assist and facilitate somehow, very vaguely, survivors. To your knowledge, has anyone stepped into that role or has it been made clear to survivors who this third-party external person is now? Uh, No, I don't. uh, I haven't heard of anybody. I don't know what Ketcha Hunt's role is. She She was the moderator at the meeting and she started... Uh, the meeting saying she'd spent uh, a week at the McKellar headquarters. So they have some kind of crisis management and then she was hired by them and she spent time at headquarters. So she wasn't impartial. Uh, she wasn't a moderator. Uh, she was hired by them and she had the agenda laid out together with McKellar. So it was very much controlled by them. She was employed by them at the time. So I haven't heard of anybody else. Uh, we're just supporting each other. Um, and then we have the people that are reporting uh, that feels like a support system as well. Um, but no, I haven't heard from anyone since. And I, I know from my friend that she hasn't been contacted since either. I was asked to give feedback after the meeting by headquarters and I was too upset and disappointed. And I said, read my many questions before the meeting. They are the same critical points that I referred to that you didn't listen to and you went ahead and you did everything the way that you wanted to do it. And I still think that many of the things were wrong and it's the same points. So read that email again. And I just didn't have any more energy to talk to them uh, about this and help them because I was just upset. It was so unprofessional. Is there anything else that you would like people listening to this to know from your perspective, from what you've witnessed, from your experiences, or just anything that you would like to add to this conversation today? I'm very much excited to move past this conflict uh, with Michaela. Um, I've been frustrated uh, for months and I've been trying to navigate and support the people that I know in this the best that I could. But I also, 
love this industry and I want to move forward with like proactive, positive change, organizing ourselves, making a lot of new initiatives. So I'm super excited for the future because this is not only about McKellar. This is about the entire industry that I work in. And I think that there's a lot of good positive forces to to do some some amazing things in the future. And uh, I would like to start focusing on that. All I want is closure in this case. Um, and I think that we can get there somehow. Yeah, I would like to reconcile this, uh, this uh, conflict. And there's been so many things happening and back and forth. And it's just been super duper tiring. And I just hope that we can move on and that everybody's going to be okay and we can look towards the future. So that was the first meeting and I guess the aftermath. We're back with Kate Burnott now. And the second meeting began with the company apologizing for the previous meeting. And this time they'd opened up the format a little bit differently. What were you told about this meeting? Yes, this meeting seemed like, you know, straightforwardly an attempt to do better than the first um, by the company's own admission. So in this case, um, attendees were given 24 hours to submit questions in advance through an online form. It's not clear that all of those questions were read. I guess there's no way for me to really know that. But the first, uh, and, and there was a third party moderator who is the co-founder of a brewery here in the U.S. resident culture in Charlotte, North Carolina. Amanda McLam is her name. And she had presumably gathered these questions and, you know, sort of synthesized similar questions and was going to pose these questions to representatives who were there um, from McKellar. So it had a more interactive feel, but it still wasn't people directly asking their questions. It was still through a moderator. Um, and actually, the first question that was asked was, why does McKellar get to decide which questions to answer? Representatives, you know, kind of from the company pushed back on that saying, no, we are, we're answering all the questions we've received. So I, I just don't think there's any way for us to know that. And obviously, it wasn't happening quite in real time. It wasn't though as though participants could just raise a hand and directly ask the question. They were being filtered through a third party. But it seemed more interactive, at least in the sense that there was a dialogue happening. One of my observations when we talk about these meetings and we talk about the response, so we're talking about the company's actions and then we're talking about the public response. There's a certain consistency or pattern that seems to be forming around Mikla's relationship with the public and with facilitating any kind of reconciliation with what's happening right now. Was there anything that you could identify about these meetings or about the way the company was approaching this that was consistent with what you've experienced already and in what way? Yeah, two major structural issues stick with me from both of these meetings. One is that they were organized and formatted entirely by the brewery. They were, you know, from the location to the logistics to who was going to speak and how. Um, this is still the company's design, which, which feels like part of the pattern for the past few months is that the company answers things when it's ready and on its terms. 
and controls the pace of the information it releases, controls who it speaks to and who it doesn't speak to. So that felt that felt consistent to me. And then the second aspect is that again, the former employees who were directly affected by the issues being discussed were not present and didn't have a voice that they chose. So again, that also feels like a pattern that the company is engaging in dialogue with the public at times, but not with the people directly affected. Um, there's engagement, you know, on social media or with certain media outlets, but not with its most important critics. Where, and this is purely conjecture, where do you see this going from here? It's so hard for me to say because very little about this situation since the summer has played out in the ways I would have expected. Um, it just seems that it's protracted, it's painful for people involved, it's playing out quite publicly without direct communication between the brewery and many former employees. So it's all kind of happening in the public eye over a very long period of time, which I would, which I know and imagine must be extremely difficult for people whose experiences and lives are being discussed. So it just feels a lot, frankly, longer and messier than I expected. And therefore, it makes me loathe to imagine what the future looks like because it's any expectations that I might have had about how this would play out haven't proven correct. The reason why all of this is important is that we are in a situation in which autonomy of decision has been highly prioritized, at least from my end. In the next episode, we will explore the chances the company has been given to make their choices. But this episode was about the ones they made, even when they knew people were watching. This episode was important because it begins to highlight the individual culpabilities from those of the company and begs the question, how are so many of those who were implicated in some of the testimonies you've heard are still directly publicly engaged with this? Most importantly, my key takeaway from this episode is that the chance to connect, even if we disregard the circumstances and champion the effort, in this chance to connect with those harmed, those harmed yet again were the last voices considered, and that disregard was felt. Let's check in now with some of the people who you've heard from on this podcast. Does does a very, very good job of making you believe that you're the problem, and McKellar is not the problem. Uh, Even so that I would look at myself and think like, what's wrong with me? Am I a money hungry, greedy American and and, and things like that? And so when it comes to when it comes to the operations and supply chain world, there's there's this kind of methodology that I use. And it's called the circle of concern and circle of influence. And like and whether you're spending time in each circle dictates what you're actually going to get done. If you're spending a lot of time on something that you can't really 
influence and you're, and you're taking up m- mental space from it, let alone actually trying to do work and affect change when nothing's going to happen. It's just a waste of time. So, so for me, I, I would think a lot like, okay, after the situation, w- what can I do? Because I, 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 you know, thought at the time and, and, and still think this like single handedly, I can't change McKellar. Um, um, I feel like I'm playing a, a role now and, and, and that that's very gratifying uh, in a sense. But, but at the time I'm looking towards myself saying, what's wrong with me? What, 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 what do I need to change? What do I need to do better? And for the past like year and a half, um, you know, I, I, I've known McKellar treating me like garbage, treating me like shit. And um, it was a, it was definitely a traumatic experience, but in the back of my mind, I, I always think like, okay, like what, what percentage, percentage of that was me and what percentage of that was McKellar because something was not adding up something was not meshing um and uh you know I would look at myself and say like what what's wrong with me you know and the fact that there are so many people coming out right now uh, has helped me a lot because it's 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 validating my initial conclusion which was McKellar's fucked up and it's not me um but at the same time, I can't help but think of that part of my brain in the back of my mind that, that, that like there, there's something wrong with you, you know, um, and, and that um, ha- has has stayed with me for a while. And it's just now starting to relieve itself because all these people are coming out and, and because I know that I'm not alone, you know, and, and, and that's something that has been has been very profound and, and, and healing and, and, and therapeutic for me personally. They should have waited, done it properly, invited everyone who's ever worked for Mexler if they were serious about real change and actually owning up to the shit they've done. But I think still they try to limit it to seem that it's way smaller than than it actually is. So I think those meetings were 100% just PR fun. And I find it incredibly worrying that... Um, they would think that was enough on their on their behalf. Like it's just a deeply um so not serious. Like it's um yeah, it actually like really makes me angry. I suppose you're in a unique position in the sense that you're a survivor. They haven't contacted you but there was, there's sort of this dangling public promise that mm. you are able to go to them and you're able to go back and, and say, listen, I, was, I had this happen, I was abused, I was harassed, I was bullied. Given what you've just said about those other meetings, given what you've said previously, do you feel like that is a realistic option for you primarily as a survivor? No, I mean, again, because going there and serving up like a really quite traumatic experience when you feel like they spent, what, like a couple, not even a couple of weeks, like a week of like putting this together, it just feels really careless and not safe. I don't feel like they realize like how unsafe this would feel for a lot of people to attend not knowing who's going to be there, not knowing how your story will be received, 
not knowing what the outcome will be. It's not how you treat people. And I also find it like absolutely ridiculous that you as a survivor should come to them. Like they're really shy of doing the work, I feel. I think, because like they're, so it's pretty like obvious that they're very keen on sort of them changing the narrative to future, moving ahead, moving forward. What can we do? We're sorry, but we don't really want to talk about it. But what can we do now? And they're skipping like a really important, several important chapters um, by actually um, acknowledging, yeah, the magnitude of um, the problem that's been there for years. Um, so I think like my feedback or like my suggestion would be like you need to how I'm not sure it's probably not even my job to tell them how but um they need to like work on on the past uh, for a bit longer before they can start moving forward uh, they need to like uh, map out the damage they done they need to like actually investigate how could this happen just like firing a few people and putting new people in place like it's not enough so yeah, I think like I would invite some kind of like thought on how do we deal with the past before we move on. Like when we start talking about this again, and when we start talking like before, like four months ago, and and when I started thinking about this all again, it was a bit tough, and it was a bit tough. Like in the, when they came out with their social media posts. Mickler came out with their social media post a few weeks ago and apologizing and then presenting some kind of pseudo plan. It just felt because I had I haven't been in all acknowledged and I know a lot of pe other people haven't. It just felt like they were trying to set the agenda and how we were talking about this, but then seeing the pushback on that was like a massive boost for me. That they were like, no, no, they're actually not in charge of this narrative. They are not in charge of when are people, when people are ready to tell their stories. They're not in charge of who gets to tell their stories. They're not in charge. And they need to, like, accept that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's touched a little bit on what I just said. I think it's important that, to emphasize that this is not, not, not a bunch of personal vendettas. I have no intention of like trying to bring down a company that is just like super disrespectful uh, to tell anyone who is brave enough to come out with their story. And also it can find time to find like both your courage and your voice when it comes to these things. So that's why I'm so fundamentally against them setting the agenda, them rushing meetings to sort of feel the deal and be able to be save, save their public image that's also really disrespectful because this takes the time that it needs to take and it's going to be tough and it's going to be hard and it's going to be a lot of work but that is just how it is so um, deal with it you cannot just pretend like it didn't happen because we're here and we're still here and we will always be here our experiences do not disappear with an email on the next episode of Super Cool Toxic Workplace, 
we ask a very simple question. Is that how friendly people make people feel? Super Cool Toxic Workplace is a Hand and Heart Media production and was written, produced, and hosted by Kate Bailey. To join in the conversation around episodes, follow at handandheart.eu on Instagram or at underscore Kate underscore Bailey underscore on Twitter. Original music by Julia Laws. Design and social media templates were provided by the anonymous artist going by Bennis Gallery and were provided for free. For all information and resources relating to this podcast, including contact links should you wish to connect with Kate and the team, head to www.supercooltoxicworkplace.com.